We're going to work through the rest of chapter 16, and then we're going to uh, read through chapter 17 and just cut, talk on a couple principles about chapter 17. So to finish up chapter 16, we've already covered verses 1 through 18. Now we're going to read 19 through 21. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great. Now, there are some chunks of Scripture in those three verses that you would think are hard to explain. For instance, has every island fled away and the mountains, can they still be found? Some people who are biblical literalists will walk outside, see the Wasatch Mountains, say the mountains are still here, we haven't reached this point yet, etc., etc. So can these things be explained uh, through any way other than a futurist position that they're literally going to happen. We'll talk about it. Uh, let's get to it. First, verse 19. And the great city was divided into three parts. So you've got to ask yourself, what is a great city? And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon, you've got to ask what great Babylon is, came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. We haven't talked too much about Daniel or Ezekiel. And if you do a study of Revelation, you've got to tap into Daniel and Ezekiel. But we've touched on it as we've gone along. I'm going to read a couple longer passages from each of them today to show you how they tie in. But if you go to Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, we read an interesting story. It says there, And thou, son of man, this is God talking to Ezekiel, take thee a sharp knife, take thee a barber's razor, and cause it to pass upon thine head and upon your beard. Then take the balances to weigh and divide the hair. So shave, Ezekiel, shave your head, shave your beard, and take the hair. Divide it into three parts. Thou shalt burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city. When the days of the siege are fulfilled... Thou shalt take a third part and smite about it with a knife. Chop a third part up with a knife. And a third part you shall take and scatter it in the wind. Woo! Blow away, hair. And I will draw out a sword after them. Thou shalt also take thereof a few in number and bind them in thy skirts. So take some of the hair and tie it into your skirts. Then take of them again and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them with fire. And thereof shall a fire come forth into all the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God. Listen to this, verse 5, Ezekiel chapter 5. Thus saith the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. 
Okay? He says, cut all the hair off your head, Ezekiel. Cut off uh, your beard. Parse it out into three parts. Burn the first part. Chop up the second part and take the third part and throw it into the wind. And then he says, this is Jerusalem. And then he goes on, he talks more and more and more. And you can read all the way down through that uh, to verse uh, 13. Uh, and he says, uh, and he goes on and talks about the third parts and all this stuff, all right? So taking that account of Ezekiel into mind, we can see that God has Ezekiel do what directly would happen to Jerusalem, all right? And did it happen? It did. It happened in 586 B.C. You have to understand that in the Old Testament, often when there was a prophecy, it applied to them then, and there was, that was like the picture, and then there was the finalizing of it later on, all right? So, what did Ezekiel do with his hair? A third of it was burned, a third of it was chopped up by the sword, and the other was scattered in the wind. Now, uh, when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem in 586 B.C., some were slain by the sword, some were burned up with fire, and the rest were scattered among the nations. Here's the thing. This is the same thing that happened to Jerusalem in 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem, and this is a fulfillment of what Ezekiel was shown prophetically way back in the Old Testament. Josephus and the earlier church writer uh, Eusebius, first church historian really, they tell us, and you've heard this number, uh, 1.1, 1.2 million Jews were uh, killed at the burning of Jerusalem. Some were burned, some were slain with the sword, and the rest were uh, taken and they were sold into slavery. They were sold to Rome to go before the gladiators. Or they were, and if that was if they were 17 years of age or older. And if they were 17 years uh, younger, they were sold to private citizens as, as household slaves. That was the end result of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. Gone. They were either scattered to the wind, they were killed, run through with a sword, or they were torched with fire. So it's a perfect uh, fitting. In 1931, an author by the name of Philip Carrington made uh, some other interesting remarks about these thirds. He says this, <coughs> quote, This reference may refer also to the division of the city into three factions. He says, while, uh, which became acute during the attack of Titus. So while Titus was besieging the city, from the outside looking in, the three leaders of rival factions were fiercely fighting within Jerusalem. Walls around it, Titus the Romans are trying to destroy Jerusalem, 70 AD, to wipe, finish it all. But within the city itself, there were three factions, and the city was divided up into three that way as well. So we have Ezekiel's prophecy being fulfilled in a, in a second way here in 70 AD, uh, he goes on and says that uh, the city would have staved off defeat for a long time, perhaps even indefinitely, for no great army could support itself for the long run in those neighborhoods of Jerusalem. There was no water and there were no supplies for them to live off. 
So they would get there and go to war, but they would run out and they would have to leave. And then the, the city could refortify. But it was because of the infighting that the city was able to be taken at that time. Uh, that infighting, just to let you know, Eleazar, who was over the zealots in Jerusalem, was one uh, faction. John of Geshala, who was over the Galileans, was another part. And uh, Simon was over the Idumeans. Idumean, uh, and so those were the three that were in the city fighting each other uh, until the power of the city was destroyed. Remember, in one night, and, and this goes back to some of our earlier uh, readings of Revelation, 8,500 people were killed and their bodies were cast outside of Jerusalem and uh, without being buried. And the outer temple was overflowing with blood. And I'm just mentioning this to you because... Uh, homes and grave sites were looted, there, and that's the beginning of disease, and the blood, and all the stuff, the running through of bodies that is portrayed here in the book. So, we have ways to show the fulfillment of uh, verse 19 in Jerusalem in that day. Uh, the people being killed by fire, being killed by the sword, and being scattered to the wind. And then the second way that could be led is by the internal factions. Verse 20, a tough one when you first read it, to say it's been fulfilled. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. So, you're going to run into biblical literalists again, who say, okay, Sean, you say that it's been fulfilled. When did all the islands fl fled away, fly away? And when uh, have the mountains never not been found? And you just have to look at how Jews wrote and how they spoke and what they said and how they did it. And if you're going to be a biblical literalist, you know, be a biblical literalist all the way through. And if you do that, you have real trouble. We've already shown that with the river of blood quote. So if you're going to be a biblical literalist, stick to that. And if so, you're not going to be able to and explain the book of Revelation. So there has to be parts where you have to say this is a way to explain something else besides what is stated, because that's how the Jews spoke. We read a similar passage to this in uh, verse, uh, chapter 6 at verse 14. If you remember when we studied that, it said, And the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island when moved out of their places. Every mountain and island moved out of their places. And we said that the plain meaning of this passage was there would be changes so radical to the way things were being governed that it would, see, it would be equivalent to a mountain and an island being moved. Now people say that's really jumping to a, a stretch to make it work. Um, but mountains are symbolic of power high places in Jewish writings. And so when they are deserted, and they can't be seen, it's talking about those powers being lost. And islands are talking about little insurrectionist groups, perhaps, too, that have fled away. In this besiege on Israel, culminating at Jerusalem, the islands and the mountains fled away. They couldn't be seen. And that's the, that's the best way that I could say this is being uh, fulfilled. The power of the governments disappearing would be like an actual mountain range disappearing uh, etc. We're not to think that this would occur literally, but which is the tendency, but the mountains and islands are representational of kingdoms, 
and of countries in upheaval and their governments disappearing. Uh, remember, when Jesus tells his apostles, another one we want to dis- dis- say, this is true. He says, listen, if you had the faith of a grain of a mustard seed, you could tell that mountain, remove yourself from here and throw yourself into the sea and it would happen. And biblical literalists, they wander about saying, quoting that and saying, if you wanted someone to be healed, all you have to do is have faith. And you say, look, it, I have faith. It might not be God's will. And they say, if you had the faith of a, a mustard seed, you could move the Wasatch Mountains and throw it into the Great Salt Lake. You're being an idiot. Okay? It's, it's talking about the radicalness of what can be done by faith. It isn't talking about literally taking a mountain and throwing it into the Great Salt Lake. It's not saying that. And when have we ever seen someone by faith take a mountain and move it? So it's not talking about that. We can bring some reason into this. We can start to understand what Scripture is telling us. To cause a long-established throne or dynasty to be disappear from the scene is like moving a mountain or, or, or an island. In chapter 6, the interpretation is supported by the uh, passage that follows it. So verse 14 we read, And heaven departed as a scroll when it was rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the next verse says, And the kings of the earth, and the men and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. Well, if the mountains had disappeared, how could they hide in the mountains? First passage says the mountains disappeared. Second one says the rich men and kings hid in the mountains. How could that be? Because the first passage isn't literal. We're talking about dynasties departing. Even the kings and the great men are hiding in those mountains that uh, are supposedly have disappeared. You get what I'm saying? So try to put a control on your literalism in reading scripture. And remember, we're talking about a people group who talked in hyperbole, who used great imagery. Uh, A mother's son doesn't show up for dinner. She says, the world has, the universe has fallen upon my head. You know, it's just talking about some real passionate people when they talk. Okay. Uh, So, verse 21 And we've talked about this, but remember there's recapitulation in the book of Revelation because it it tells the story of what's happening and then it tells the whole thing again. And then it tells the whole thing again while moving us forward. So that's why I'm constantly repeating some of these stories because this is what the book does. But it says, And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the hail thereof was exceedingly great. Biblical literalists, Sean, when has hail the the weight of a talent, I think that's like 100 pounds. Is that 100 pounds? That's 100 pounds, Ray tells me. 100 pound hail. (laughs) If you get hit with hail the size of a golf ball, your car's in trouble. So when, Sean, in the history of our world, recorded history, has it hailed with 100-pound hailstones, right? And so you automatically are like, well, I don't think it has. Exactly! And that's why we're waiting for this time to happen to the earth. Uh, We've already talked about the meaning of this passage, but Josephus gave us some great insight to the hailstones weighing about 100 pounds when he described these large stones being shot from Roman cattle cattle puts? 
catapults. Catapults is when the cow is golfing. Uh, uh, the cattle foot, <laughs> they have these cattle catapults, and they would launch these stones, humongous stones, up over the wall of Jerusalem. That's a way to attack the city. And we read the following. He said, the 10th legion of the Romans launched white boulders as heavy as 100 pounds. So now we have Josephus and John the Revelator meeting in their description. John foretelling it what was going to happen. Josephus telling us what happened. Over the city walls into Jerusalem. They were cast by catapults from Roman engines from a distance of up to two furlongs, which is a quarter of a mile away. Josephus records that the watchmen on the wall, if they saw them coming, would shout, ready? The sun, S-O-N, cometh. That's what they would shout. The sun cometh. Now, what would cause those guys to say that? We're going to tell you in a minute. This is in his Wars 563. So, why would they shout, the sun cometh, when these giant cat, uh, rocks are head, he, uh, headed toward them? After a while, the Romans learned, they were first white stones. They were pure white stones. And they learned, listen, let's paint them dark. Probably because at night you can't see them. And they won't be able to defend themselves against their coming in. So they start painting them or coloring them black. Obviously, when these stones started falling on Jerusalem, the end of Jerusalem was winding up. And this is what the bold judgment is representing again. The final wave of super attack upon Jerusalem. In 1878, J. Stuart Russell, in his book titled The Parousia, offers this explanation, he says, page 482, quote, it could not but be well known to the Jews that the great hope and faith of the Christians was the speedy coming of the sun. Okay, this was written in 1878. It was about this very time, according to Hegesippus, that St. James... Hegesippus was a historian, 110 A.D. to 180 A.D. Hegesippus said, St. James, the brother of our Lord, publicly testified in the temple that the Son of Man was about to come in the clouds of heaven and then sealed his testimony with his blood. Okay, so James had gone and said the Son of Man is coming in anticipation and preaching that he was coming and and that was in 62 AD, okay, when, when James was killed. It seems highly probable that the Jews, in their blasphemy, because remember, they would not repent, uh, when they saw these white masses hurling toward them, they said the sun is coming. The sun is coming in mockery of the Christian belief. That is the way that, you ex that they explain that. That's why they would, Josephus says they would cry, the sun is coming, look out. Now, I can't believe people would uh, make such mockery, but remember, these people were really far gone, and they were not about to turn, no matter what was falling upon them, and the, the whole thing was accept Christ or die, and so the boulders are coming, and they, I guess some of the people just made a joke of it and started saying, look out, here he comes, another boulder over the wall. 
Now, before we move into chapter 17, there's a question I think we have to ask, and you're going to have to answer yourself. Could Josephus have known of John's revelation? Again, could Josephus, the historian, have read John's revelation and then catered his description of what happened to Jerusalem to what John described as having occurred? I think it's important we cover that simply because there is a theory out there that the Flavians, that those were the Roman rulers post-Nero, got together and they said amongst themselves, the leaders, well, we better come up with something to control these Christians. And we better come up with a great story that is going to make them believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And they confabulated, I think that's the word, this whole narrative of Jesus and Josephus being in the pocket of the Flavians assisted them in causing all the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament narrative pointing to the end. And then, uh, then Josephus steps in and he, he makes all the revelation of John, supposed revelation of John, make sense. And what it does is it appeases the Christians and the Romans have control over the Christians and they have control over the Jews. And the whole thing is a myth that was created by the Flavians to control the people. Now you might, and I've mentioned this before in here, you may laugh at that theory, but we have someone who used to come to campus. He still does sometimes in the morning. He likes campus. He likes the teachings. He's a complete, completely sold out to the Flavian idea. He does not believe Jesus was a real figure. He doesn't believe in times of Jerusalem. He doesn't believe any of it is factual, but that it was all created by the Flavians as a gigantic con to get the Christians and Jews to start getting along and be at peace because of they all getting what they wanted and having all the prophecies and signs be completed here with the destruction of Jerusalem through what John said would happen. And so I think it's important that we do speak and ask ourselves, could Flavius Joseph, uh, jo Josephus, could he have written his history? And, and what they do in this theory is they say, uh, Josephus was just a sellout. He was a Jew who... who uh, to save his own neck, sold out to the Romans. He got in their pocket. He was made their historian. He was able to survive. And so why do we give him any credence? He did nothing but record what they wanted him to record. And so I've been quoting Josephus this whole time, and yet some people have come up with the theory that he was, he was in their pocket creating this. So let me give you three examples from chapter 16 alone where Josephus seems to echo what chapter 16 says exactly. John wrote in verse 18, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. We covered that. Josephus wrote, quote, from War of the Jews 445, for there broke out a prodigious storm in the night with the utmost violence and very strong winds, with the largest showers of rain, with continued lightnings, terrible thunderings, and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth that was in an earthquake. These things were a manifest indication that some destruction was coming upon them when the system of the world was put 
into this disorder, and anyone would guess what these wonders foreshadowed, some grand calamities that were coming. And so our friend who used to come to campus in the morning, and he was a follower of Christ and a Christian, reads these comparisons and says, I don't believe that that Josephus saw what he says he saw. I think he just borrowed out of the content of Revelation 16. Second one, John's Revelation says at verse 19, Now that great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Josephus writes in Wars 5.11, It so happened that the sedition at Jerusalem was revived and parted into three factions, and that one faction fought against the other, which partition in each evil cases, sorry, which partition in such evil cases may be said to be a good thing and the effect of divine justice. It's a paraphrase. It's not direct, but in, I guess the way they would explain it is any good con is not going to be exactly direct or else the con's revealed. So uh, the content similar. And then finally, at verse 21 of chapter 16, before we leave 16, John's revelation says, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Josephus in Wars 5, 6 through 3 says, Now the stones that were cast were the weight of a talent. It's almost a direct quote. Uh, and were carried two furlongs and further. The blow they gave was no way to be sustained not only by those that stood first in the way, but by those that were beyond them for a great space. Sounds like more um, detail, of course, than what John gave. As for the Jews, they at first watched the coming of the stone, for it was made of a white color, and can therefore not only be perceived by the great noise it made, but could be, but could be seen also before it came by its brightness. I'm not sure how to understand that. I didn't think about it before I read it to you, but... Bottom line, there's similarities. And the big one is that the weight of a talent. Well, either the stones weighed a talent, and John was told it weighed a talent by God, and it's coming, and Josephus saw the stones that weighed a talent, and he reported it, or there was collusion. Uh, my response to the um, Flavian idea is it's way too far-fetched to believe they could construct such a meshing tale from the Old Testament into the, and then create the new, all of Paul's writings, fiction. The Flavians are smart enough to create Paul's fiction and then create this destruction to bring peace between the Jews and the Christians. So obviously I stand with saying, look it, if John was told it was going to happen by God and Josephus wrote what happened and what happened uh, happen the way God said it would, there's going to be similarities. And it's no big deal. If someone wants to go and believe the rest of the New Testament was fabricated in order to appease the Jews and the uh, Christians under Roman rule, have at it, good luck with it. Uh, I cannot for the life of me see that as ever possible in terms of a religious con. Now, uh, as a Latter-day Saint, when I read the Book of Mormon, I read the Doctrine and Covenants or Pearl of Great Price. I can see religious con uh, right through that, you know. And uh, I 
I want to see religious cons. So if it's there, show me in the New Testament. There is no way I could ever possibly believe that the way that thing is constructed relative to the old and what happened historically by writers outside of Josephus, I just, I think it is, it takes so much faith in the power of the Flavians that uh, you might as well put your faith in God and think it's right because, all right. So uh, this brings us to chapter 17, and I'm going to read that. Let's read it together. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. We're getting into some real imagery now. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was written the, the name, was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and abominations of the Gehei, earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This is John. And the angel said to me, Wherefore did thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman. And of the beast that carrieth her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that thou saw was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Do you remember that phrase? that was and is not and yet is, takes us all the way back to Nero. We're talking about him again. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains. Remember, Rome sits on seven mountains on their coins, seven mountains, with the woman sitting on top of the mountains. We're seeing Rome here, uh, seven mountains on which the woman sits. And there are seven kings, five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. We covered that when we covered the Caesars, the Caesars of Rome. We'll do it again when we get there. And the beast was that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh and goes into perdition. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and share their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And he said unto me, The waters which thou sawest, which the horse sitteth, 
are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, which shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is the great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So we are going to cover that verse by verse, but before we do it, I think I have to pause and cover these other passages for you to hear. And uh, I'm just going to read them. They're a little long. And to show you that what we have in the book of Revelation is a pattern of the way the book has gone is similar to the pattern of Matthew 24, which is similar to Daniel 7. We have the same type of pattern in Daniel 7, then in Matthew 24, and then in Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation that brings it all together. Just let me help you remember. No, I don't, I don't think I'm going to cover that. I think we can cover that later. But right now, we have, we've just covered the uh, bowl judgments, right? Chapter 15, chapter 16. Chapter 17, we're going to cover the great harlot. Chapter 18, the great city. Chapter 19, the great army. And then in chapter 20, we're going to enter into the millennial reign of Christ. And we're, so what's happening here is we're coming to the end here in Revelation, both of the, of the Revelation and the New Testament and the Bible and of, um, uh, of all time being described here in the book. So chapter 20 is the beginning of, of the millennium, verses 1 through 6, and chapter uh, 20, verse 7 through 15 is the end of the millennium. And we'll go back and we'll talk about what that means. And then in chapter 21 and 22, we have the conclusion of everything which a full preterist says, this is what we're in now. A partial preterist says, we're waiting for that to occur. Everything else in Revelations happened, but we aren't in the verse chapters 20, 21, or 22. Partial preterist, everything up to chapters 20 have com completed. But we're still waiting for 20, 21, 22. A futurist is most things in the book of Revelation after chapter 4 still need to happen. So now we're starting to put that all into place. And then, of course, the historicist says this thing cycles itself over and over and over again through the course of history. So we're seeing it constantly over and over and over again, except for chapters 20, 21, and 22. They're still to come to summarize everything. So the key to the structure of the book of Revelation, as I said, can be found in two places. Daniel chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 24. Um, there's conceptual, there's theological, there's thematic and linguistic parallels in all three of those places that foreshadow what we're going to read about, what we have been reading about in the book of Revelation. So I want to discuss them very briefly to give you an overview, and then we're going to wrap it up. Because it's, it's a lot of reading, but I think we have to get this in the can for you to get it in your head. And then I'm going to tie it in as we continue to go forward for the rest of the book. The, the seventh chapter of Daniel is really important because the book of Daniel, the first six chapters are pretty much history and in a historical, chronological order. 
The remaining six chapters are prophetic in the book of Daniel. So if, you, if you're turning to your book, then you know. And that means from chapter 7 to the end, we have prophetic nature in the book of Daniel. And most people who teach eschatology turn to Daniel, and they use it and Ezekiel and Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Revelation to describe the end times. Um, Chapter 7 in Daniel is important because what it does is it introduces the prophetic nature of the rest of the book of Daniel for us. So it's kind of like the linchpin between the history and then the prophetic of the book. And it begins with a vision concerning four beasts. In the first year, Daniel reports in verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Since Daniel gives us a summary, this leaves room for more details to be added in Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and in Revelation. So at verse 2 through 14, this is what Daniel says in chapter 7 of Daniel. I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. Excuse my voice. A human mind also was given to it. Weird, this is wild. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise and devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And this I kept looking in the night vision, excuse me, after this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I just read to you in, in 17 about ten horned beasts, so stay with it. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vestiture was white snow, and the hair of his head was pure wool, like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriad upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. 
Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. We've covered most of this in our study so far. And for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted unto them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to whom was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I have people frequently say, well, if your view's right and his kingdom wouldn't be destroyed, how do you talk about everything ending? I don't talk about his kingdom ending. We're in the kingdom age. Revelation chapter uh, 22 and 21 and 22, the kingdom age is here. I'm just saying everything before that has been fulfilled. So contained in this kind of long set of scriptures is an outline of the end time sequence that will also be, that becomes the framework for Matthew 24 and Revelation chapters 4 through 21. You'll see the same sort of outline in them. By way of summary, Daniel indicates four beasts are going to rise out of the sea. The fourth beast will uh, eventually have ten horns in his description. And when the ten horns rule, another horn will arise and destroy three of the original ten. After some times, thrones are, thrones are set up, and then the Ancient of Days takes his seat. Who is the Ancient of Days? Ask that question of people. Ask your scholarly friend, who's the Ancient of Days? I would suggest right now it's God. God is the Ancient of Days. I think Joseph Smith said it was... I can't remember who he said the Ancient of Days was. Adam. Adam. Adam, thank you. Yeah, he said it was Adam. And most, many Christians say it's Jesus. But I don't believe that when you see what else is said. And a court will be seated. The books are open. The boastful beast is going to be destroyed. His authority with his helpers uh, are going to be suspended. One like the Son of Man will receive dominion, glory, and a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. And the reader must not miss the important fact that Daniel gives a general overview of the events of the end of time here. Okay? So... It's followed by a specific look at the four beasts, beasts and its unparalleled persecution of the saints, uh, which will terminate with its destruction, their destruction. So that happens in verse 15 through 28 of Daniel, and I'm going to read it at 7. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Quote, the great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. 
exceedingly dreadful, with teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest in the, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, that was a big long question. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. Now that earth there, I bet in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament is Gehei and not world, cosmos. As for the ten horns, out of his kingdom, ten kings will arise. And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. We've studied this. We've read what has happened in our earlier chapters, how Satan was cast down and how the saint was allowed for 42 months to kill the saints and wear them down. And, will in, and he will intend to make alterations in times and law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half years. That's the 42 months. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest order, highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. We have been studying Revelation and we have been reading this unfold to us. That's why I held back on reading it. Instead of reading it and then having you... Uh, make it fit for everything we were teaching. I thought, let's just teach everything and then hear what Daniel had to say when we get toward the end of our study. And to me, we can see the, the, uh, all what we've talked about with all the different Roman emperors and with Nero and the 42, and a half month, uh, the 42 months or the three and a half years and all of that come into play here way, way before it ever happened. The rest of Daniel 7 is concerned with an explanation of the fourth beast and the eventual destruction of his kingdom. So you got all that? All right. Next week, we're going to jump into chapter 17, and we're going to also show how Matthew 24 helps line up the book of Revelation in this order, the same order as Daniel 7 and Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation itself. And I think that will lend to our view of saying, well, we can at least see that Chapters, we'll just say 1 through 19, have been fulfilled. It's up to you to decide if you think 20, 21, and 22 are fulfilled. When we get to 20, 21, uh, 22, I'm going to teach it and, and suggest that I think it has and explain why. You may not. If you don't agree with me, you'll be a partial preterist. 
I don't care if you think you're a futurist, you're a partial preterist, if you agree with verses 1, I mean chapters 1 through 19, having been fulfilled then and there upon them by the Roman army and Nero. If you still think that we are waiting for the last three chapters, you're still waiting for the arrival of Christ, that's fine. Most people are. Not me, being full, and we'll see where we go from there. Okay, questions, comments, insights. We have two questions down here. And anybody from our home viewership? You're hot, you're hot, Patrick? Hi, Sean. Hi. I am hot, thank you. <laughs> oh. I'm not one up in you. Anyways, um, you know, this is a big, what you're teaching is a big contrast between most other denominations. I say denominations, but this morning I had the opportunity to go into Salt Lake City, down to... Don't say it. You just went to another church. You don't want me to say it? No. But anyways, it was very interesting because uh, I had a battle with the deacon <laughs> with words. And, uh, yeah. Anyways. Were you wearing your yarmulke is all I want to know. No. Dang it. Because Dave told me I can't have my head covered. Well, of course not. Continue no. on. So I respect that. So this is on a little bit off topic, but I want to know your opinion on this. Um, Jesus says, in Matt, in John chapter 14, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Listen to this. Because I had a big debate about Trinitarian at the, his church. I to this morning, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. And then it says, um, and I'll manifest myself to you. Um... Oh, and this one says, if anyone loves me, this is the last. He will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So that sounds like that's, that's Jesus as the Holy Spirit, because God is Spirit, coming into you and living in you. We will, yeah. Yeah, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, coming and living in you. Sounds like it. Not, it, does, it doesn't sound Trinitarian to me. I don't know, my brother. After oh, okay. my three-hour discussion with our friend, I'm just swimming in... Uncertainty. Well, I love your teachings on preterism, by the way. They really are uh, mind, mind blowing and wonderful. Praise God. Who else? Oh, there we go. Your sister Alicia. Sister Alicia. <laughs> hey, you know what on the mountain thing? Uh, <laughs> <coughs> I didn't mean thing. The mountains. I look at it as spiritual as. Um, Getting through your trials. Yes. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. And I right think on. that's what they always meant. Thank you. You're welcome. Love that. Robert and then Jonathan. You know, Sean, it's interesting. Um, after you're done talking, you give your audience a chance to ask questions about what you presented. And not many people do that. And... Uh, once in a while, you know, may the Lord not hit me on the top of the head the next time there's a thunderstorm or the bolt of lightning. But when I would teach Sunday school class in, in classes, a lot, of men, a lot of many people would do this. But, you know, I'd wait the extra 10 minutes and then I'd stop and I'd let everybody ask questions, you know. And you do that, you know. I don't know if you got that from me. Uh, That's before we, 
That's before we met. But I think that's great, Sean. I think that's great that you allow the audience to do that. That's really, that's really cool. Praise God. A lot of, a lot of Sunday school teachers, various churches, no names, but they will not do that. So thank you, Sean, for that. Wanted well, to say my that. pleasure. Thank you for commenting. You guys say stuff that's really helpful, stuff I, I'm wrong on or don't think about. Jonathan. Hi, this is Jonathan. I just uh, wanted to share a very insightful resource with anyone online and with the church. It's called RevelationRevolution.org. Very good. It's very good. RevelationRevolution.org. Check it out. Test all things. Good one, Jonathan. Thank you. I, I look at that often. All right. Hi, this is Steve. Hey. <laughs> uh, when you were talking about that, was it the that uh, Flavian conspiracy? Yeah. Yeah, I, that just, a lot of conspiracy theorists will probably like that one for they later. Do. So now you've got there for them all to see and <laughs> yeah, just, you know, think about later. But the whole time you're saying that, I'm just like, that's quite the theory you got there, Eisenstein. I don't, I don't know about that one. So Yeah, it's a big one. It, you have to swallow huge amounts of information to believe it's true. Yeah. I mean, you might as well believe other, all, lots of other sure. <laughs> histories, you know, yeah. the same way. So, I don't know. That's it. All right. Hi, Wendy. <laughs> Wendy, we have, a, we have a revisit back here. We have a visit, a revisit. Patricio has another addendum. Okay, I have a question. How long has Protoism been around? Like the teaching, like how long has people known about it in, in the world history? Well, it's a great question. We have a book called It's Not the End of the World. Yeah. In that book, at the beginning of each chapter, by the way, it's downloadable free. If you want, go to campuschurch.tv and you can download it free. Download uh, it. The, in, the opening chapters give quotes all the way back to the first century of people saying Jesus' return was his fall upon Jerusalem. That is plain as day. Amen. So the preterism was developed recently. I don't think so. Because the deacon I talked to this morning said, oh, preterism, that was only developed 50 years ago. <laughs> well, give him those quotes and ask him to explain that. Well, praise God. Praise God. Amen. All right, we done? All right. How many bagels are left back there, John Stephen? Bags. Five bags left. Everybody take them. Or the rats eat them. I came here the other day and a rat was walking out with one of our TVs. They're so strong. Don't leave bagels. All right, let's pray. Lord, uh, you know, there's joy in being yours and not having all the answers and to question and to search because you tell us to love you with uh, all of our heart and soul and mind. And we got to get those minds really loving you. And we can't love you unless we really search things out and really, or at least are convinced by the spirit that what, what you uh, give us in your word is true. So help us to not be afraid of those questions Robert brought up and to offer them and to ask them and not to debate, not to fight, but just to question and seek. Now's the time because as you said, when you walk this earth to know you and to know your father is life eternal. And we know you by having our questions answered. So we pray you'll help us, Lord. Help John Taylor and his family. John is a quadriplegic in Southern California. He has huge bed sores. He's flipped over, flipped over, and now the flipping isn't working. 
And so he has been in that state for decades, and he is a, a follower of the ministry online. He loves the ministry, and uh, we just pray as a body of believers around the world, really, that you'll bless John, uh, John Taylor, and help him in his uh, physical trials and that of his family along with him. Pray for uh, his family health care uh, problems, too. Uh, Ellen, that her back surgery went well. Annette, she'll continue to heal. Liz had a knee replacement. We pray that it will stick and continue on. Uh, Diana and the healing of her leg and that she'll have comfort and peace and know she is loved and missed. Gracie, that our, our little friend uh, without hair, battling cancer, her parents, her family, that you'll heal her and give her all her hair back and help her to have a healthy, long life. Uh, we pray for everyone traveling this weekend and may be safe. We pray for our little friend, Jax. We, uh, and, and then, Lord, I prayed for my grandson, Samson, last week, and, and I thank you publicly before my friends and family that uh, he is fine relative to the blood work. And so uh, he, now we can figure out what's wrong in other places and move forward in faith. We worship you. We recognize that you are there. You are cognizant of each one of us, of our sorrows, of our difficulties. You, you have us in your hand. Help us to realize that and to understand the eternal view the eternal significance of this life, not just the temporal, but the spiritual and the eternal. And we seek to have that as we go out into this week and live our, our religion, live our faith, according to the dictates of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord.